2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I'm here, as always, with Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Hey, guys. You guys, you guys like my jacket? Damn, that's nice. It's Gucci. Man, Snow I feel Buzz like you've been, Messenger jacket. I feel like you've been wearing a lot of Gucci lately. I, I'm glad you noticed that. Used to be frumpy, but now lots of Gucci. I'm kind, like, of, more, uh, I'm kind of going for more of a rocker thing. <laughs> uh, man, All my, of which is to say... We want to get Buzz Bissinger on this yeah. podcast. Come Buzz, on the program more now Buzz than ever. So badly. You can wear whatever you want. doesn't matter. Max, who did you talk to this week? I talked to Molly Young, who also writes a lot about fashion. Not quite as confessionally. Also for GQ, correct? Also for GQ. She writes for New York Magazine as well. She also has a full-time job, which is not a journalism job. I think that's the first person we've had on who's in that situation. Um, and she was pretty uh, eloquent, actually, in sort of like talking about how that's made her work better. You know what's made my newsletter work better? The good people at Tiny Letter, who are a sponsor this week. Thank you to them. All right. Let's hear from Max with Molly. Hey, Molly Young. Hey, Max. Thanks for um, coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry about all those times that I canceled. That's okay. I'm sorry I canceled too. I like I, I I that made me feel better about the canceling. Good. I'm still down one though cuz I canceled twice and you only canceled once. So sorry. You also are pulling a power move on me because I'm sitting in a extremely large sized <laughs> unwieldy chair. Yeah, we I maybe we should take a picture and like post it. You're you're in a very large chair. You're you're in a chair like built for uh, an obese person, I think. <laughs> it 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 feels kind of luxurious and I It's does, 3 feet wide. It's more of a love seat. Yeah, it's definitely for two. It's a it's an office chair for two. I like uh I, but it doesn't seem like it has like the qualities of like a king size bed. You know when you're like in a king size bed by yourself and it's just I could sleep in any direction? Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like that. I think you're in like a fat person's chair. You're not in like a luxurious chair. You're in a fat chair. Makes me feel very small. Um So, here here are some things I'd like to talk to you about. Uh a thing I'd like to talk to you about is um your writing, which I really like, and I'm also interested in um, what it's like to be reporting the stories that you report as a 26-year-old person. Because um, I think uh, you're much younger than other people we've talked to for the, for the program. 
and I'm interested in that. But here's the thing that I, I want to talk about first, which is that um, you have a day job. Yes, I do. I have a full-time job. You have a full-time job. That is not being a writer or being a journalist. No. Um, why? How do you get, how, like, how, do, how does that, uh, how does that work? How do you end up with a full-time job? So was the plan always to get a full-time job and write on the side? Well, the plan was always to get healthcare somehow. So a year, about a year and a half ago, I met, I was reading a piece that I wrote for The Believer at an event, and the event was sponsored by a company called Warby Parker. And while I was there, a mutual friend introduced me to this nice guy named Neil, and Neil turned out to be the co-CEO and one of the four founders. And it was a pretty small company at the time. I think they had around 35 or 40 people. And... They needed. They basically just needed someone to sort of take care of all the words that went on the site and sort of take care of a lot of publicity tasks and marketing and stuff like that. Um, so I started working there and I've been there ever since. And now there's around 150 people, so it's grown an incredible amount. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a pretty awesome company. I guess um, I I mean like what's your you're writing a lot of pieces. Right. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So you're like, uh, you, you seem to be publishing as many magazine articles as many people I know who are doing this full time for a living. So, what, like, when do you write? How does it work? What, what's your, uh, do you like, do you write every day? Do you work? No. No, I get up early. I get up really early. I have a farmer's schedule. So I always get up early and I like to maximize my exposure to daylight because it improves my mood really significantly. Um, so I get up really early and I write in the morning and then I go to work and I have it built into my contract that I get two weeks off a year to report pieces, which helps a lot. And then otherwise I just do it on weekends. Do you write every morning? Is that like a, is that no, a rule? Not every morning. I don't really know when I do it. <laughs> it's a lot easier when it's not your job. I think it's so much easier to write when it's kind of an illicit hobby that you have to sneak in. Uh-huh. Uh, because then there's a perverse pleasure in writing rather than just a dread of it, which when it was my full-time freelancing job, I just dreaded writing. How long were you doing that? How long were you a full-time freelancer? Um, probably three or four years. And the urge, the reason to take a full-time job was about health insurance, but did you, did you worry or do you worry that it was going to slow you down or affect your work? Or has it, has it slowed you down or affected your work? I'm definitely writing less than I would be if I weren't working a full-time job 12 hours a day, <laughs> startup hours, but I don't, I just don't really see it as a sacrifice to have a full-time job. It feels really lucky, and I really like the work I do there, and it's kind of complimentary. It's definitely, I've become a better kind of analytic thinker and a lot better at arguing my case because you have to do that in an organization. Right. How has being able to argue your case helped your, like, journalism? Well, it's something that I've never been able to do. I don't, I'm very bad at argumentation in general, and I think that's why I write so many profiles, because there's much less of that. I'm just not good at it. And uh, when I was taking the McKinsey Strengths Finders test, st you know, strategy was one of the things that I did not score high on. Yeah. I just, I can never see one step ahead, and I'm always blindsided by really simple plot twists in TV shows. <laughs> I'm just not a strategic thinker. And so um, sort of learning to argue a point has been something that I've learned sort of in an office context and then tried to apply to my writing. Um, do you think that's something that can change? Do you think you can like, you can start seeing uh, moves ahead? 
because I also I feel the same way. Like I, I'm con- con- like consistently uh, shocked by my inability to like see several moves ahead in a conversation or like in an organization or whatever else. And I keep telling myself that it's like something I can improve at, but I'm not actually sure I can. Do you- I think so. There, I my editor at GQ, this guy Devin Friedman, told me something um, six months ago that really changed the way I thought about sort of ideas. And he said that. We were talking about a piece I was writing, and I was just kind of despairing over. I just, I really didn't have any theories. You know, when you write a profile, you kind of have to have a theory about this person. I just didn't have anything. I basically just didn't have any thoughts or ideas about this person. I was just writing really descriptive sentences. And he said that, you know, just keep writing the sentences because in those sentences there will be ideas. And a lot of the time, you know, it's just your job to sort of find the ideas and pull them out and then expand upon them. Do you hope when you go out and write a profile, is it best case scenario that you have an idea before you start? I usually do, but that idea always changes completely. Mostly I just have an idea because I've done a lot of research on the person and sort of come up with my take on them, but it's never the same. The instant I meet them, it's always completely dispelled. I think... The experience of spending a ton of time with somebody when you're writing a profile is always... The danger for me is that I always fall a little bit in love with the subject, mostly because I spend so much time with them, and because I think just the state of listening to somebody, when you're just sitting there listening to somebody for hours and hours and days and days, that tends to bring out the best in people when they feel like they're just being wholly accepted without judgment, even though you're silently judging them. Um, And so that situation where you're eliciting somebody's feelings and their thoughts brings out the best in them. And I always, no matter how much I, in theory, dislike a person or dislike what they're doing or disagree with them, always find myself really enamored of them when I'm writing a piece. Do you feel like you should turn that off in some way? Like, uh, do you worry about... That's what what the editing process is for. Right. Do you, I mean, do you worry about upsetting the people that you're writing about? No, I don't. I used to, um... But I recently wrote a profile of this woman, this astrologer named Susan Miller, and I thought it was a pretty, uh, harsh is the wrong word, but she's an astrologer and I think she's a total charlatan, and the piece makes no bones about that, and she was very unhappy about it, and there were all these angry emails and angry phone calls from her supporters, and the comments were, you should be ashamed of yourself, Molly Young, and that kind of thing. Um, But I... I wrote it as I saw her. Did did she call you? Did you talk to her? No. No word. No. Wow. Did you probably put a curse on me? <laughs> yeah. Whatever. I'm gonna your, grow horns. Yeah. Whatever your sign is <laughs> is in deep trouble. <laughs> that was interesting too because there had been some other profiles of her that had come before. I, did was that assigned to you or is that something that you had pitched? I had pitched it actually. I was fascinated by her because her audience is this incredibly elite difficult to reach group of what what sort of people in media call influencers and I couldn't figure out why this woman whose website is so ugly and whose writing is so unhinged had managed to to sort of grab their attention so thoroughly I still don't quite understand it she's a really good charlatan she's a great charlatan yeah she knows what she's doing how long were you with her how long was that reporting process I spent probably eight weeks I went to her house a lot. She has a house on the Upper East Side. Yeah, that sounds like a really nice place. I was sitting there trapped. Well, she she's one of those people that has no con, 
consciousness of other people's existence, really. And once she starts talking, it was literally I had to stand up and advance to the foyer before she would understand that I had to go after four and a half hours. Right. Yeah, there's a line in there where you're like, I realized I did excuse myself, otherwise I would never leave. Um, so let's get back to this for here for a second. So um, you wake up in the morning and you write for a while and then you go to work. Does the security of healthcare and like a full-time salary, whatever that is, uh, allow you to be, how does that affect your choices and what you write about? Mm -hmm. Well, I try to write things that I only, I try to only write things that I really care about. And um, that's sort of almost a discipline, like realizing that your best pieces are going to be the ones that you care deeply about. And you can say, you can sort of say no to some things or maybe not pitch things that you're not 100% sure of. So I try to do that. I also find that with writing, I do most of my, I'm putting air quotes around this good thinking when I'm not actually sitting at a desk, but when I'm taking a walk or on the subway or um, doing dishes, which I do a lot to relax. Um, and so the actual being at work for a certain amount of hours a day doesn't really cut down on that stuff. I've been thinking about this a lot, right? And have a lot of, a lot of conversations around this, in part because of the whole like Nate Bayer thing in the Atlantic and writing for free and all that stuff. And I've talked to a bunch of people your age who are kind of like actually like aspiring to be where you, you are at a little bit. Like I think like writing for large magazines, writing features for large magazines is, is a goal for a bunch of people. Um, but they're forced because of the situation uh, they're in to sort of A, write a bunch of like schlocky shit that they don't particularly want to write to kind of pay the bills also to write some free stuff because they feel like they need to do that to get their name out. And I guess just having a full-time job mean you don't have to do some of that bullshit that freelancers have to do. Yes, definitely. If you were talking to someone else who had freelanced for a couple of years and was like getting a little tired of not having health insurance. I think that's all it's good for, to be honest. I mean, to my mind, the only good thing about having even a small amount of money to subsist on consistently is that it allows you to not have to compromise so much and it's just it's exhausting to be a freelancer and to be writing things that you hate or to be writing things that you love for free and it's a completely powerless position to be in you have absolutely no leverage as a freelancer and you have editors not responding to pitches that you took hours and hours to put together and it's incredibly demoralizing and I hated that part of it like it's just soul crushing, I think. And it's just part of the job. So to be able to not have to go through that so much makes it incredibly worth it. I think just not having to compromise so much is maybe the only thing that having another independent source of income is good for. Did you always want to do this? Was this always the, was this always the goal? Was this always the plan? Well, I was never much of a long-term thinker, but... It was the only thing I could easily do that I liked doing that was also potentially monetizable. So I, uh, I just never really was not good at any other things, particularly. Have you? I mean, ha have you always written? Were you like the like five year old who was telling yeah. stories and stuff? Yeah, I remember the first thing I wrote was a sequel to a book called uh, "From the Mixed Up Files of Mrs. Basilie Frankweiler" by E. L. Konigsberg. It's an amazing uh, children's book, or I guess early reader book, chapter book. And I wrote a sequel to it on our old Macintosh and printed it out on the dot matrix printer. Nice. I'm so proud of it. It just never occurred to me that, 
that I couldn't write. You know, the book ended and I was dismayed that it ended and there was no more. So I just decided to write more. It was such an, such an easily fixable problem. <laughs> and I wish I still had that, but I don't. <laughs> when did you start writing for newspapers and magazines? How did that happen? Well, when I was in college, I, I interned at N plus one long ago. They had their office on Christie Street. It was a tiny little room. And I remember our first task as interns was to install an air conditioner. And the space in which we were to install it was kind of oddly shaped. And so the only way we could fit the air conditioner in was if we installed it vertically. And it never <laughs> occurred to us that you couldn't just, that they weren't just modular things that you could plug in anywhere. Obviously, it didn't work. We had to reinstall it. But that was my first, N plus one was my first kind of exposure to uh, people who are writing and people who had ideas and who read books and talked about them in a way that was struck me as really cool at the time. And I did, I, I mean, my internship was mostly just menial work and I was grateful for it, but I wrote a piece for N plus one, I think the next fall after I'd interned about taking Adderall, which was something I did too much in college. And that was the first time I'd ever been published. Not, I wasn't paid for it, obviously, but it was um, a really good feeling. It was, the piece was, it was one of the earlier pieces about Adderall, I think, and that's why it got some traction. And my favorite thing about that experience was that it was featured in a college sociology textbook about cheating. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How'd you find that out? I got like a $25 check from the company. <laughs> That piece is like pretty um, personal and confessional and uh, uh, vulnerable, I guess. Um, I don't you- know how vulnerable it is. I think one thing about M plus one that I learned early on was that part of that voice is a kind of strategic self-deprecation, and it's very strategic and very intentional about what is revealed, and a lot of it is for the sake of humor, and a lot of it is kind of for the sake of deflection. And I read that piece now, and... I'm not sure how, it's definitely not a, a vulnerable piece, particularly. What do you think you were holding back? How much I was actually taking Adderall, <laughs> for one thing. And also, well, no, let's just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> um, what, what, what happened next? Did you uh, graduated school and what was the goal? Like, did you want to get a staff gig? Did you want to be like uh, writing had- novels? What did you want to do? Definitely not novels. I just had so much fun writing. I just always had so much fun doing it that I wanted to be able to keep doing that and get paid for it. And getting paid any amount for it seemed like I was just totally pulling the wool over people's eyes. Like I couldn't believe that I could get paid for it. So I worked at a, I got a, I moved to New York and I got a job at a East Village restaurant washing dishes and which is just the perfect kind of meditative hard labor to that I was just, you know, I had my hydraulic hose washing dishes and I was just thinking about stuff that I wanted to write while I was doing that and then I would go home and work on pieces and I I pitched to a whole bunch of different places and sort of very gradually I, I wrote you know a short reported piece for the New York Observer and I started writing little pieces for um, The Economist has a arts blog called Prospero um, and I sort of very slowly built up a tiny little body of clips and then sort of just went to more and more places that paid more and more money and tried to get work from them until I could quit my dishwashing job. Do you have any advice for people who are are starting out in that way? Like, how did you pick where to pitch and, and, and uh, how did you go through that process? Did anyone help you? 
I think just by being extremely transparent with editors, because here's the thing, when you pitch to someone, you know, I think when I first started out and I was pitching, I had the sense that my own conviction and enthusiasm about something would be enough to persuade an editor. And of, of course, they don't give a shit about that. It doesn't mean anything to them because they have a job to do and certain boxes to check. And I think the more you can sort of put yourself in an editor's position, the more successful you'll be in sort of coercing them to give you work, if that makes sense. I think you need to sort of sometimes just be very open and say, what boxes do you need to check off? Uh, I think sort of divining an editor's motivations can be really tricky as a freelancer because they're just very opaque to you because you're not in the office and you don't know that they just had a meeting and they recently ran a piece about what you just pitched. And so, of course, they're not going to want to read another pitch about it or they need a piece by a woman writer about XY topic now. You don't know those things. And so I think a good piece of advice is to just ask editors, tell them you'll take them to a drink at a bar of their choice. And no one in the history of publishing has ever turned that down. <laughs> um, and then you can just ask them very frankly, what are you looking for? What do you need? And then take that as a start to your pitch finding, your idea finding process, rather than sort of starting with your interests. Yeah, that, um, I think that's really good advice. I mean, that's kind of like good life advice, trying to like solve other it's people's It's like basic problems. influence tactics. I mean, it works though. So how many, so, you know, you're taking editors out for a drink and then you start developing those kinds of relationships. At what point do you start getting assigned stories or, or still like everything you're doing, stuff you're pitching? I started getting assignments after, I mean, the bar is actually pretty low, I think a huge thing is just being punctual with your work and turning it in when you say you will, which is so unusual that just checking that box makes you a lot more attractive, I found. And so turning things in on time and then just being super receptive to edits. Like like when you're 23 and you're working with an editor who's 10 years older and way more experienced, just accept their edits. Like don't push back that hard. You know, you're learning and you're basically... You're getting paid for learning how to write a piece, ideally, if your editor is, is any good. And I just I just think it's important to be really receptive to edits and to be really, you can be really demanding in your communication, like ask them to explain why this thing or that. But ultimately, it's it's like a free, it's free teaching. Yeah. Um, so you're getting stories assigned now. Do you ever do you ever turn down those assignments? Is there ever like stories that don't feel like good Molly Young stories that people want you to do? Yeah, I mean, from time to time, there's stories that I kind of sometimes I get stories that I'm pretty sure I'm the sixth or seventh writer that they've offered the story to. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm in a long chain of no's. Um, it's funny. I think one thing that always surprised me was that nobody ever wants to write celebrity profiles. It still surprises me because there's something glamorous about about meeting a celebrity, but. The truth is that it's impossible to write a good one, as so many people have written about. Right. So a lot of those stories, um, I think I'll be the fourth or fifth or sixth person to get offered that is, assignment. Is there something kind of freeing about the like collective knowledge that it's impossible for it to be great? It's I mean, it's pretty depressing, I think. Do you like doing them? No, I hate them. You hate them? Yeah, it's humiliating. I think it's any time you're writing, I mean. To be writing a celebrity profile puts you in a position that no human wants to be in, which is that you are speaking with somebody and you know that they're lying to you and you know that they know that they're lying to you. And that's 
just the most humiliating situation anyone can be in. It violates any human sort of instinct for maintaining dignity. You've also written about like that stylist piece that you wrote for GQ is like, uh, that's not a celebrity profile. That, that seemed to me, I mean, I don't know that world particularly well. Um, that seemed like pretty authentically behind the scenes. That was like a, a world I didn't know about and a world that if I did know about it, I would expect to be pretty like glossed over. And that seemed to show uh, the kind of like underbelly of the stuff and the kind of pomp and circumstance of Hollywood. Um, how did that one feel to write? Was that your idea or was that assigned? That was assigned, actually. And I like writing about fashion because I don't, I really dislike fashion. I think it's totally boring and it's an industry that is only interesting from an outside perspective, which is one reason why there's just no good fashion writing out there. Anyone who's involved in the fashion industry who writes for a fashion magazine is, their paycheck is directly tied to, to their... Right, that story's sitting next to a giant ad from the people... Exactly, exactly. And, but as in sort of the economics of the fashion industry are really interesting because it's not a general interest subject at all. It's about really expensive clothes and celebrities and glamorous people, and yet somehow it has this mass appeal despite the fact that it's really unattainable and doesn't have any pretensions toward being attainable. So the stylist piece I wanted to write because... I think that it reflects something really interesting about how Hollywood has changed and how the filmmaking industry has changed. And it all comes down to the money and where the money comes from, which is the money comes from marketing and from Nicole Kidman doing 10 fashion campaigns and perfume campaigns and movies hardly even hardly even count anymore. So I wanted to sort of follow the money and see who was behind that image making. And in a lot of cases, it was just stylists with safety pins and really good contacts in fashion. What, what was the, uh, did you get any reaction from the folks who were in that piece? Um, well, when we were fact-checking, she was threatening to sue. Really? Yes. What, was there a particular thing that she was upset that was in there? Yes, there was a quote about Nick, Nicolas Cage. That she, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nicolas Cage. She'd worked with him, and apparently, I think it was Armani, had refused to lend him a suit, and she told me that, and I... I wrote it in the piece, and she... You had, like, a Nick Cage thing in there. Yeah, Nicolas Cage is really into velvet. <laughs> and Armani didn't want to lend him a suit, and that was a big deal for some reason, I guess, because it reflected poorly on... I guess brands don't want to admit that they are very selective about who they'll lend clothing to. Right. Plus, like, Nick Cage is a jackass. He's a jackass. But, I mean, he could buy an Armani suit and wear it. <laughs> they just won't give it to him for free. Right. <laughs> You're in that story uh, in bits and pieces. Um, there's like a moment in that story where you like uh, ask a dumb question. Not that there are dumb questions. You like, you like ask some question that doesn't understand the context of the situation, which is an interesting choice to put that in, right? Because I assume that uh, much like these interviews, like people, you're asking dumb questions all the time. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine writing pieces without putting yourself in there? What's the, what's the reason to do that? What's the theory? I think it takes more discipline to write a piece without putting myself in there. And that's something that I would like to, to do more. It's, it's harder. And for that piece in particular, I really wanted to reinforce the idea that I was an outsider in that situation. Partly because it made it 
more high stakes, where it made the sort of um, artificial high stakes quality of what was the of the scenes, it drew it into higher relief because, again, the stakes were really low in that situation. Um, like Nick Cage, if he wasn't going to get an Armani tux for free, like could buy one with all of his money. Right. Not a big deal. But right. in that situation, it seemed like really important that he couldn't get the tux for free. And I think just having an outsider there to ask a dumb question or to observe the fact that why is every single refrigerator in L.A. stocked with coconut water right now um, kind of helps to, to draw that into a higher relief. Does that character do like does Molly Young the character change based on where you're? Oh, writing? totally. That's the funnest part. I think uh, I always think it's funny when people use the word hack as a as like pejorative. A, as a pejorative, it's like the ultimate compliment to be a hack if you can just throw your voice and write a halfway successful piece for you know L or GQ or I don't know Scientific American. Not that I've written for them, but it's just. A skill that I think is, it's like being charismatic. It's just such a coup. <laughs> I would love to be even more of a hack. What do you want to write about? What? Yeah, that's it. That's the whole so, question. What do you want to write about? The one thing that I'm always interested in is power. I think there's nothing more interesting than following people who have power and seeing what they do with it and how they use it and... I'm just obsessed with, there's a book called Power, How to Get It and How to Use It by Michael Corda, who used to be in publishing. And it was published in, I think, 1975 as, it was a joke. He wrote it as a joke, but it was taken completely seriously by the public. And it's just full of kind of, it's basically a self-help book about how to make power grabs and then leverage your power. And so it has advice like, for men, you want to have a sofa in your office to sig- to signal that you could you know, have sex with a woman in your office if you wanted to. <laughs> what does it say that my, I just went to like, oh man, so you could take a nap? Like you're that powerful? <laughs> <laughs> well, that too, I guess. <laughs> but there's all sorts of advice in the book. And I just, I found it right when I was working at News Corporation for a brief spell of time at the Daily. And I just took all the advice that he wrote in his book and I applied it in real life. And at a place like News Corporation, which is just very bare knuckle, kind of aggressive, primal, power structure it completely worked really what were some things that worked so one of his pieces of advice is to seize neutral territory in an office so you have your desk but then gradually you're supposed to take over the surrounding territory so what I did was I ordered a bookshelf for all the books that I was ordering from publishers to ostensibly review although (laughs) that publication did not publish too many book reviews but so I got the bookshelves and put the books in the bookshelves then we were kind of doing a lot of lifestyle type writing. And so we had all this swag coming in from publicists and I ordered a bunch of file cabinets to put next to the bookshelves. So my desk, my office area was expanding. <laughs> were you expensing them? Were they like yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, like, I was just asking the office manager. Um, also becoming friends with the office manager is key Yeah. in any situation. But so I got the file cabinets and then I asked for locking file cabinets so that people would have to ask me for the key if they wanted to get into them. Really? Yes. And this all worked really well. And I was suddenly getting packages addressed to, like, books editor and stuff like that, even though I was just a reporter there. <laughs> and I had, you know, the boss asking me if I knew where the keys were. And I was like, yeah, here they're here right in my desk. And so, so books like that and just any kind of depiction of power, I think, is fascinating, whether it's sexual power or just 
money, just having a lot of money or a lot of influence. I think power is fascinating and all the profiles that I've written have been about people who have some form of power that I'm interested in finding out about. And so that's kind of like the beat that you'd continue to like to the be power beat. The power beat. It's a good beat. <laughs> yeah. How does how does all the, all this thinking you like to do about power affect your reporting? Do you like shift in and out of uh, retaining power? Oh, well, I'm incredibly aware of it in reporting situations. And I think the one thing that you can do to make people comfortable is to completely cede power to them. You know, do it in a place. You always want to meet in a place that your subject chooses where they're at home and comfortable and don't feel intimidated. And I usually, you know, dress in a very quiet, subdued way. And I'm naturally a pretty quiet person. So I think that just being as unobtrusive a presence as possible creates a kind of vacuum that another person rushes in to fill. Uh, before I let you go, I uh, I don't even actually have anything all that specific to ask you about, but you wrote this piece for The Believer called Sweatpants in Paradise. That was, that was about Hollister and malls and weed and growing up in San Francisco and a whole bunch of things. Um, it's great if you are listening and have not read it, you need to read it. Um, what was the genesis of that piece? Like how, how, how did that come about? I didn't realize it at the time, but that piece had its germ in the fact that I've had pretty bad social anxiety my whole life. And when I was a little kid in kindergarten, I would stay uh, after school in the after school programs because my parents worked. And I'd be there until like six o'clock at night or something. And at a certain point, I would just get a really bad headache or I would start throwing up or I'd have to go lie down in a dark room, you know, like face down on the carpet. And it was just because being around other people was really difficult for me, like chemically, in some weird chemical way. And so that piece, Sweatpants in Paradise, came out of the fact that there's a, the, the Hollister store opened up in New York, and it's this enormous pounding, pounding music store. It's heavily perfumed. Um, there's tons of salespeople walking around. A lot of them don't have shirts on. Um, they kind of yell out. They chorus out things like, party at my house at regular intervals. You know, it's like a very high-stimulation place to be, and it was really stressful to go there, but somehow I... I could never resist going in when I walked past it. It was like when somebody says, oh, this smells so bad. Here, smell it. Right. It was that situation. And I just wanted to figure out what it was about that that was appealing to people, um, sort of what theories of retail were in place that made that seem like a good idea and, and like something that would sell clothing. So I spent a lot of time in the store. And it, it connected pretty heavily back with my youth because the culture that they're invoking is this kind of California surf culture that I was a part of as a teenager. There's a bunch of elements of that story, right? So you've got like these very vivid descriptions of being in the store, which sounds basically like the worst place on earth. And uh, you've got the, like just these descriptions of like the actual town of Hollister, California, which is not at all like the image they're trying to project. And you've got this kind of stuff around your, your like youth and childhood how did like when you sat down to write it or when you started realizing there was something there how, how like fully formed is that idea in your head when you sit down like did did you know that it was going to go you're going to go down all these various paths no i didn't know that when i started it but i wrote it the way that i write a lot of pieces which is just in modules so i don't write i never write pieces in order i just 
I'll write a paragraph about something that I'm most interested in at that particular moment, and then I'll move to a different, totally different subject and write a paragraph on that. And at the end, I act, I just literally rearrange them until the story makes sense. How, like what, and then uh, add transitions. How, how do you like actually do that physically? Like, you, are you like just a giant word doc that you're just like a word doc? I don't do anything crazy, like print them out and cut them up or anything. That's a thing. That's a that's thing. A that, thing? That, that's a thing that people do. Like index cards or yeah, index wow. cards and like move around on a table, pin that them up to the wall, help. start like pulling down sheets. <laughs> people get real about it. So, so that but that's kind of your process, right? Is that you're you're kind of like taking these various strands and then you piece them together afterwards. Right, because I think. I had a friend once who his rule for writing was if he had fun writing it, then it would be fun to read. And that rule is true in his case because he's a really excellent writer. But it's also mostly it, it has elements of truth to it in my case where if, if I'm writing something and I'm bored when I'm writing it, I know it's going to be really boring to read. And so I try to just skip around and write about the things that are interesting in that specific moment and then rearrange them. And that seems to be a way to make each sentence as good as it can be. How, how has that process evolved? Is that how you've always done it? Yeah, it just seems very intimidating to start at the beginning and then right through to the end. Like, how the fuck do you know what you're going to do? How do you know what you're going to say next? I don't know. People, I, I mean, you know, I've talked to people on the podcast who, uh, like, write the kicker first. Talked to some, Mac McClellan does this thing where she has the entire, like, first paragraph in her head before she sits down. That's incredible. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's like... Uh, you know, that's some weird... That's a strategist right there. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it would be hard to write a book like that. Do you have aspirations of writing a book? I wrote a young adult novel. It was a mystery, and it published under a pseudonym. Really? Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. That did not come up in my research. Well, I've hidden it pretty well. It's <laughs> not my finest moment. I wanted to see if I could write a book. How'd it go? It was fine. I'm not crazy about it. Did you sell a bunch of them? No, it didn't sell. It got reviewed in the New York Times, though. That's cool. It got a mediocre review. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> do you think you'll do that again? No. The, I mean, the economics of writing a book are really bad. They're yeah. just You spend so much time on something that doesn't pay a lot of money, and then you have to market the hell out of it. What was the plot of the book? It was an epistolary novel, and it was a girl gets... The premise was that a girl gets sent to a mysterious place, and she doesn't know why she's sent there, and... She, over the course of her time there, she slowly figures out why she's there and the fact that she's had a hand in her own uh, internment there. Wow. It's pretty heavy. Yeah, it sounds pretty serious. But writing a mystery is, I mean, mysteries are some of the most formulaic um, things you can write. I mean, obviously, if you're good at them, they're not formulaic, but I wasn't good at it. And so I just tackled it in a very systematic way. So you're writing a bunch of features for magazines. You've written a young adult novel. You're working full time. Like, how do you how do you do all that stuff? Do you have any like? Are you like a life hacky person? Like, how, how what? How do you find the time to do all no, this stuff? No, not at all. But a lot of the people at my work are life hackers, and so I can pick up some tips from them. I just started <laughs> using Evernote. <laughs> oh yeah, good times. Yeah, it's really excellent. Yeah, it is really excellent. I mean, um, uh. You know what? That was actually a bullshit leading question because I, I knew the answer that I wanted you to give and you didn't give it. So oh, I'm just going to bring it up it? again. I have read previously that um, you do not have the internet at your house. This is true. That is a life hacky thing. That in, in 2013, is. that is a life hacky thing to not have the internet at your house. I wish I could say that it, it, it was intentionally a life hacky thing, but I actually just got really enraged at Time Warner and I ripped the stuff out of my wall and went to the <laughs> Time Warner on 23rd Street and 
slammed it on the counter and refused to pay anymore. <laughs> really? So I don't have, do not have oh, the internet. Oh, it was not a distraction thing? Because when no, I read that... It was just a moment of rage. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, see, I, when I read that thing, I got like super inspired. The internet's been really kind of making me sad lately. I think and I reverse engineered it in my head to be like a decision Yeah, that was definitely that how you described it in the thing I read. Oh, uh, Molly. <laughs> just a recreational liar. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> seems like seems like this is a good place to end it. Okay. Um, Molly, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I'm Max Linsky. Uh, thank you for listening to this program. My co-hosts are Evan Ratliff and Aaron Lammer. Our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Sarah Amandalare. Thanks very much to Molly Young, who I'm pretending is not sitting across from me right now, but she is. Thank you for coming. We'll be back next week.